Welcome to Breaking Brave. I'm your host, Marilyn Barefoot. And I wanted to mention that if you would like to connect with me directly, you can always do so at MarilynBarefoot.com or BreakingBrave.show. I see and answer every single contact personally, and I would truly love to hear from you. Welcome to Breaking Brave. I'm your host, Marilyn Barefoot. Leo Hilton joins me today to discuss childhood trauma. What happens when the innocence of a child is stripped away without warning, with no lifeline in the form of a loving parent to go to for comfort, assurance, safety, or protection? Can you imagine where this story leads? Is it feasible that any of us can expect a good outcome for such an experience? In childhood, Leo was subjected to physical, mental, and emotional abuse, which led to repeated traumatic separations after he entered the foster care system and then ultimately entering prison. Now, Leo teaches via Zoom from inside the walls of the main state prison. According to a number of experts in prison education, Leo is the first professor of his kind in the United States of America. Please welcome the very brave Leo Hilton. I am honored to have our guest with us today, Mr. Leo Hilton. Leo is joining us from the United States, and I am so grateful that we are able to have this conversation, and we want to focus on some incredible work that Leo plans to do with respect to his doctorate, his PhD. It's uh, it's very, very brave work. So welcome to Breaking Brave, Leo. Thank you, thank you, thank you for having me. Do a level set for us, if you don't mind, Leo, with respect to uh, this conversation. So how how did it come to be that you and I uh, met each other and then decided to have a conversation on Breaking Brave? So this conversation came about, um, I want to say we were connected through Stephen Matthew Clark uh, through his Awakening Exchange. And I was fortunate enough to be part of kind of getting that up and going over a year ago now, that being a space of community connection across the walls from inside and outside of prison, where I'm currently living. Uh, I'm currently incarcerated at Maine State Prison um, with Stephen, and both of us have been here for a significant portion of time. Um, I've been incarcerated now for 15 years since I was 18, five weeks after my 18th birthday. Um, I committed a violent act that brought me here to prison um, and set me on my current trajectory of coming to realize the obligation uh, that I created by causing that harm. And so now living a life of working to atone and heal personally and support the healing and transformation and supporting people in their healing journeys um, in as many places as possible, which is where Stephen and I, uh, our work intersected with the Restorative Practice Steering Committee here and then the Awakening Exchange, you know, just really, really working to help people be with each other in ways that I think we have largely forgotten um, and gotten away from in our society of individualism and independence and separateness. Uh, we both believe in restorative justice and restorative justice as an ethos, as a way of being in the world and seeing each other in the world, the interconnectedness that exists between us. And so we connected really strongly on that. And it's that foundation that I think really led me here to be with you today. Excellent. Well, and and personally, since meeting Stephen and interviewing Stephen and, and airing his episode, I've stayed involved in the Awakening Exchange as as I'm able to in terms of joining some of his his online meetings and meeting new people through that. It's fabulous work. Now, I'm not comparing you and Stephen together, but Leo, can you too have embarked on a huge educational trajectory? So can we hear about that in terms of 
obviously you've got high school, you've got a bachelor of arts, you've got a master's, and I think you're going now or in the middle of doing a PhD. And that's a a very basic understanding as you're talking to somebody who just has a BA. So after you get past that, I'm like, okay, I'm lost. I don't even know what comes next. So please tell us about your education that you've embraced since you've you've uh, been inside, so to speak. Sure. I realized um, I started my PhD program this semester at the same time that I realized I've been in school now in college for 10 years. Um, I started my associate's program with the University of Maine at Augusta, paid for by the massive blessing of Doris Buffett's Sunshine Lady Foundation. Uh, Ten years ago, fall of 2013, I started my associate's program. And now, 10 years later, I'm starting my PhD in conflict analysis and resolution um, at the Jimmy and Rosalind Carter School for Peace and Conflict Resolution. And... So that's just college. But one of the great ironies of my life is that I was arrested on the same day that I was scheduled to take a pretest for my GED because I dropped out of high school um, when my biological father died on the one year anniversary of my foster mom's death. And I watched both of them pass uh, and didn't know how to handle it. And so I ran, um, got into deeper into alcohol, drugs, parties, women, um, everything unhealthy to try to get away from everything I didn't know how to deal with. And so got arrested on the same day that I was scheduled to go for my GED back when it was a GED before it became the high school equivalency test. And then I received my GED, the diploma, on the same day I received my 50-year prison sentence. February 26 of 2010, and then lost all hope of education. Before I came to prison, my hope, my dream, my goal was to get a PhD in psychology. Um, I had been a foster kid from 10 to 18, and so I was forced to see different therapists along the way, and none of them were able to look me in my eye and tell me I have been there. A bunch of really well-meaning people, but no one I could relate to. And so I wanted to be that for at-risk youth, in particular, boys age 10 to 18 in the foster system. Um, and all that went out the window when I committed the crime that brought me to prison. And I lost hope for all of that. Lost hope of education, was thankful just to get my GED. But then, as I mentioned, uh, Doris Buffett, uh, that, that program here, really opened the door and provided me an opportunity to realize that my life wasn't over, that I was still able to realize some of the potential, some of the intellect that I knew that I had, because school was always kind of easy for me, but didn't really have space for. And so I earned both my associate's and bachelor's degree funded by the Doris Buffett Sunshine Lady Foundation through the University of Maine at Augusta, supported by a number of their amazing professors. And then near the end of my bachelor's program, Dr. Ellen Taylor, I wrote a paper for her literature class, and she wrote at the top that that was that that paper was graduate level work. And so when she handed it to me, she said it would be a waste for me not to go to graduate school. And so I pursued a master's in a master of science in conflict analysis and resolution at the Carter School. And my concentration was in social justice, advocacy and activism. And so working to uh, transform the system that I have found myself in and brought myself into, and now stepping into my PhD program in the same discipline, working to open avenues, doing research to help open avenues of meaningful accountability, healing, and repair outside the criminal legal system. How's that for a journey? <laughs> I, I'm speechless. First of all, God bless the Sunshine Ladies Foundation. Yes. Until I had met Stephen, and he mentioned them on on his discussion with me, I had never heard of them. But I'm feeling like this year I need to make a donation. I mean, it's Canadian dollars because I'm based in Canada versus American dollars. But hopefully, every little bit helps. I um, it's going to sound really weird, Leo, but I'm I'm very connected with your backstory, your childhood story. It answered so much for me, so I could see why. This is going to be 
the focus or is the focus of your PhD. I'm going to read you something as a launch position to start chatting about this. This came off a LinkedIn article that I think you reshared or liked or both. And I'm sorry that I don't have up on my wall the name of the woman who wrote this book called Chasing Normal. But I'm taking a I'm taking a quote from the LinkedIn post, which says, What do we honestly expect when a child goes without the very foundation of love, protection, and safety from the people we believe are meant to be there for us? Do we honestly expect a good outcome from such an experience? Do we just believe life will sort itself out and they'll be all right? Do we think this kid will grow up and out of their trauma on their own without anyone intervening? showing them the path, guiding them and giving them the love that they so desperately needed, and then to be able to live wholly and independently. I want you to be comfortable with what you talk about with me today, Leo, but you had hellish existence from the moment you drew your first breath in the family into which you were born. You didn't have this love and security and all of the things that kids are supposed to have. And that, as we've talked about, I'm making an assumption, started you along a trajectory that ended you where you are now. So how can we make a change in the foster care system, in in, in whatever system? Because I think you said to me the first time we chatted before getting on the podcast, you went into foster care by raising your hand and saying, I want to go into foster care. This was a phone call you made to get yourself out of your own situation. But that came with an awful lot of other issues, if you will. Yeah. Um, as you were reading that post, it almost brought tears back to my eyes like it did the first time I read it. Because there is so much pain in this world. And so much of it falls on children. Yeah. And so much of it comes from adults who are still wounded children and so these cycles of harm and violence and abuse are perpetuated generation to generation and to be fair i had some good memories growing up in my early years it wasn't all bad um and i had aunts and uncles and cousins and teachers as i reflect on my life there were a lot of people who tried there were a lot of people who showed up and showed me love in ways that I wasn't ready or able to accept or to trust. Because, yes, um, at 10 years old, I had had enough. My mom did her level best to keep food on the table, roof over our heads, educated herself, put herself back through school to be able to make a living wage. And my dad tried, but he was one of those old older people who grew up but never grew out of their childhood trauma. Yeah. He he was 55 when I was born and he still carried the wounds of his childhood daily and reminded us daily through his words and his actions visiting that pain on us. And so there's a lot of emphasis placed on individual choice in this country. And I made some terrible decisions to get to where I am. And my dad made some terrible decisions in how to raise light-skinned black boys in a predominantly white state within systems of harm and oppression. But that's the thing that we tend to omit, that we tend to look past, is the impact of systems on families and on individual choice. Because the way that our society functions is grounded and guided by this individualist approach that separates us from each other when the safety that we need, the safety that our children need, is in connection. And so when wounded parents wound their children based off their own pain, that is set within struggle. My mom had to fight just to be able to make money, to be able to put food on our table. 
because my dad couldn't couldn't work because of his medical issues and traumas and inability to be able to function in this capitalist society in a way that was acceptable by the people in positions of power to hire people. He's a black man straight off the island of Jamaica, living with a green card in America with a white wife. And so this relationship that started in the 70s, people like to look at Maine as post-racist or as not having a history of slavery. And yet growing up in this state, within these systems, within the school, within the foster system, and then transitioning straight from the foster system and prison system, the racism may not be overt, but it's there and it is felt every single day that a person of color exists in this state. And so that's really why I focus on systems because yes, I see the people and I honor the people and I work with the people and our people are set within these systems that continue to perpetuate these harms. And so in order to interrupt these cycles of harm, we need to take a systemic look at how people continue to be harmed in these ways. And so, yes, when you mentioned the foster system, the prison system, and also the school system, if you look at their structures, their administrative structures, their policy structures, they're all very, very similar in ways that we really don't want to look at collectively. Is it still your dream, your desire, Leo, to be that person for kids, to be that I've lived it, I've been there, I've done that, I understand what you, you're telling me because I've stood in your shoes. Is that is that something you want to do? Is it something maybe you might be able to do in some way, shape, or form? That exactly is what I am striving towards. There are specific roadblocks, barriers, loopholes that need to be jumped through in order for me, as someone currently incarcerated, to be able to engage with, with any juvenile with anyone under 18 while currently incarcerated. Oh, of course. Um, and I never thought of that. <laughs> and so that's another reason why I look at systems because I can't work with the key population that I need to work with. And thankfully we have an administration who is working to figure out ways to make these avenues mm. open, to open these avenues because they realize the unique life experience and the power that is held in that life experience to interrupt these cycles of harm and to care for the kids who are growing up in the same circumstances that led the majority of us here in this prison right now. And so my hope, my dream, and my goal, what I'm looking forward to is being able to work directly with youth, right? Restorative justice, the, the low-hanging fruit of restorative justice is working with nonviolent juvenile offenses misdemeanors, right? Petty theft, vandalism, things like that. And yet harm happens between people as part of the human experience. And restorative justice, restorative processes existed long before our current punitive systems did. And so what I'm looking forward to is moving towards getting to where we were before where we are existed. Yeah. And that is pulling our youth in, letting them know that they are seen, that they are loved, that they are cared for, and that they are understood. And who better positioned than someone who has caused harm to understand what drives young people to act out the way that they do, especially with the lived experience that I have through the foster system. There's been a lot of press around some youth, some local youths who the police don't know what to do with. They have been wreaking havoc which for me is them acting out of their pain. They have found other kids who hurt in same ways that they hurt. And so they've gotten together to find that connection with each other and to express that pain in ways that they don't get have words for. It took years for me to find the words to be able to articulate the pain and the traumas of my youth. And so for me to be able to step in with them to say, I see you, <laughs> I feel you, I understand your pain, I understand you're lashing out out of that pain, and I understand what that feels like. And I have the words, I have the tools to work through this. 
And so that's what I would love to be for our youth is to be able to step in with them, to let them know, I see you, I feel you, I understand. And I'm here to sit with you in the darkness and the pain until you are able and ready and supported in stepping out of it. When kids go through this kind of emotional trauma, it's a situation where they can't cope. Whatever reason, whether it's physical, whether it's sexual, whether it's emotional, whatever it is, the pain that they are experiencing is beyond their ability to cope. So some of the things I read, your heart, your soul, and this was visual reference, which spoke to me, starts to kind of harden up. It kind of turns to a rock. Like, I don't want to love. I don't want to trust because it hurts too damn much or I expose myself to being hurt too damn much. And once that starts to happen and then just gets the heart and soul just gets harder and harder, you act out. What the hell? It doesn't matter. Nothing matters. Yeah. Um, I was diagnosed actually at 13 with emotional detachment disorder and oppositional defiant disorder. And so looking back, I see those as misdiagnoses that need to be done away with and the behaviors seen as what they were and what they continue to be in our youth, which are trauma responses. Crying out and separating myself from people internally in order to protect myself. Because if I hurt myself, if I separated myself from others, then it meant that they couldn't hurt me to the level that I had been hurt. And so through the foster system, being pulled from one home after another, and there was one in particular, the only family that I really wanted to adopt me. When I was pulled out of there, that was it for me. Um, I refused to be hurt like that again. And so, yes, I started hardening my heart. And there's a verse in scripture that speaks about God's promise that he will take our heart of stone and turn it to one of flesh. So over there, I want to say Ezekiel 36, 26. And that was a promise that I learned to lean into. And then it was finalized and has been finalized, the softening of my heart in relationship with other people. And that's been amazing. I have up here, remembering looking out the back window of the station wagon that carried you away from the tears streaming down your would-be mom's face. That was the day you resolved to never love anyone again. Yeah. This lo loving, loving just hurt too much. Entirely too much. Well, Julian Anthony, my son Sasha, um, a Canadian couple, <laughs> uh, Canadian family. I read uh, that too, and and he he was like thirty five, and the 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 son Sasha was like a brother to you, treated you like a brother in this family. They had several, I'm guessing, foster kids, but you were the one they wanted. You were the one that they were actively trying to adopt, but yet they couldn't get their U.S. citizenship. Is that what happened? And they got kicked out of the U.S. and they had to go back to Canada? So sadly, I don't know uh, what became of them. They were still in the U.S. after I left, um, but they weren't able to get their citizenship. Um, I found out some years later that they ended up splitting up, and that hurt a lot. Um, yeah, but yeah, it was their inability to get U.S. citizenship, and they were fighting for it in hopes that they would be able to adopt me. I totally understand that, where you've been hurt so much, so many times, the ability to cope with that level of hurt is just not there. You basically turn yourself to stone where it doesn't matter. And I wonder, maybe it's obvious, maybe it's not, but is this where gang activity comes from in that you talked about the police don't know what to do with some kids that are in the state of Maine. I'm not saying they're in a gang, but they're looking for love, connection, and family, and they can find it in a gang where they can't find it in their home or in their surroundings. So that's actually uh, where the origins of gangs come from, 
is the community protection of themselves against the police who they could not count on to protect them Hmm. and to provide for their communities in ways that the government refused to. So what we conceptualize as gangs now, what they've turned into in a lot of violence and all that, their origins were in community connection and community protection, Hmm. community provision. And that's really what so many of them still stand for at their core. And that's what still draws young people into them today is because our systems still do not care for the people who are most in need. And so these children feel it. They feel it not just in their homes, but they feel it when they step outside of their homes and they go to school and they can't find safety at school. And then they find it on their way home when, in particular, Black, Brown, and marginalized peoples are targeted by police just based on the way that they look or the way that they dress or the fact that they can't afford good clothes and so they they look shabby. They don't have clothes. They don't look well-fed. They may be going to school dirty and smelly and so they get moved to another room in school where where they're um, the special programs where kids can't be in the rest of the classroom with the other kids because they don't behave like the rest of the kids. They don't conform to the expectations because they don't know how. They don't feel safe. They're not provided for. They're not cared for. And so, yes, they have to find it somewhere. And we continue to not pour the resources in where we need to in caring for our youth and creating the spaces of safety and care and connection without the restrictions that come with so many of the programs that are, that are tied to schools, the freedom to be a child and to be a hurt child, to be heard, to be seen that the disruptive behavior that some kids are engaging in is really them calling out saying, I am hurt, I am hungry, I am in need, hear me. Yes. And they continue to be punished for it. I have a BA, Leo. I have never gone to a, a level with any school, college, university of having a thesis. Do you have it kind of in your hand as to what you want to address with the work you're doing on your PhD program? I mean, you don't have to say it word for word, but just kind of what is the theory of the work you're going to be doing with your PhD? So it's actually really simple, I think. There is this whole body of research and anecdotal evidence from victim survivors saying that it works there is all oh there are all of these stories there's all of this research that says restorative justice provides a meaningful avenue of accountability repair and healing that actually honors the voices and the experiences of all victim survivors regardless of what they look like regardless of their history regardless of how they present so there's this whole body of research that says this And then there's this whole body of research that says our current criminal legal system, our current punitive system of jails, prisons, youth detention centers, that all these things do is perpetuate cycles of harm because they are grounded in a history of harm that is easily traced back to their roots in slavery. So there are these two bodies, competing bodies of research. And so restorative justice is proven to be healing redemptive, supportive, restorative, transformative for the people, especially for the people who have caused harm, in transforming them from someone who has caused harm, even though we all have, but maybe caused serious harm interpersonally, into someone who realizes the obligation that they created by causing harm and wants to really repair that and shows up in the world in a radically different way. And so we have all of this research saying restorative justice works. And then we have all of this research that says the prison system doesn't, right? That we have this massive recidivism rate, that people come out worse than they go in, that not only do people who come in the system with serious mental illness come out worse, but that actually the experience of being incarcerated is traumatic in and of itself, and especially solitary, generates serious mental illness. So we have these competing bodies of research and a whole bunch of restorative justice practitioners in the middle saying, why are we not getting the support we need? 
why is there not a meaningful structure to support restorative justice? And so what I want to do, I want to do my research in that in-between space of how do we really establish avenues of meaningful accountability, repair, and healing outside of the criminal legal system? And I believe that it comes down to fear-based decision-making, mostly by elected and appointed officials. Because nobody wants to be the one who's, who allows for this process to go forward, and then it fails, or it causes more harm. Because there are no guarantees. The only guarantees that a restorative justice practitioner can give is that the person who was harmed and each person directly involved in the harm will be heard will be cared for, will be supported in their journey of healing. And that is where so many victim survivors are saying, this is what we need. We want to know that we are not going to be harmed again. And the only way that they are able to receive that guarantee, be able to hear that, is through a restorative process. Because within the current criminal legal system, there's no real space for that. And so I want to do the research that supports the establishment of a meaningful infrastructure of restorative justice across the U.S. Amazing. Now, Leo, you're teaching right now because I have something on my wall that says, according to a number of experts in prison education, Leo is the first professor of his kind in the United States of America. So can you explain what that means? Yeah, so I have had the distinct honor and privilege and blessing to be able to work as a visiting instructor at Colby College. Um, I've taught for two years sequentially in the spring semesters of 2022 and 2023, co-teaching a 300-level anthropology course called Carcerality and Abolition. And so when, when I speak about the roots of this current system, it is from a place of learning and growing and researching and teaching on this very subject. And so I've worked as a visiting instructor at Colby College, and I serve as a guest lecturer and guest presenter to college courses, college classes all over the country, actually. And that has been so transformative when I spoke about my healing. When I spoke about the softness of my heart that I live into today, that softening, that connection, that experience of full connection for the first time since I was little, that came in relationship with my students and my co-professor. Because what was required of me, that I felt was required of me, but that was to create the container of safety and courage and co-learning that we were building together. It required vulnerability. It required me to show up with my students in the fullness of who I am to let them know that it's okay for them to show up in the fullness of who they are. And being able to meet them however they showed up in the classroom and then to see them in my office hours and spend time with them on their personal journey of growing into adulthood and healing in ways that you might not think exist or you might not think are needed in a prestigious college like Colby. You know, people look at colleges like that and say, oh, a bunch of privileged white kids go to school there. You got a bunch of really hurt kids there. And they're not kids. Let, let, let me not call them kids. They, they, they're young adults, but they um but they're growing into their lives. And that was the first time since my incarceration that I felt like I was able to do something healing for my community, to be able to give back to the same community that I took so much from, to be able to be with my students in that way, to be able to teach and grow and support them into the next leg of their journey has been amazing. And then to present and speak and engage with people who are stepping into careers and sometimes who are already high-level professionals getting graduate degrees in trauma healing and in restorative practices and in restorative justice to help them 
to step in and share my story and train them to go and reach the people that I can't reach. It hurts to be in a position where I have so many answers and I have the skills, the aptitude, and the drive, the passion to be able to help people and support people and reach our young people and to not be able to do it. And so to be able to show up and support the people and train the people who are then going to go out and do the work that I can't do, that is, I'll take that any day of the week. And that too is a massive blessing. I can see it in your eyes as you're describing it to me, how much it means to you. Now, it also means that in some cases, maybe it's Colby, you get to leave the prison to go and do this. And up on my wall, I have, now maybe maybe it's true, maybe it's not true. You can debunk this myth if, if it's a myth. Leo keeps an unopened cherry-flavored hint seltzer. Since March of 2022, you've held onto that bottle as a prized possession and a, out of a touchstone, a talisman of how that made you feel to be outside of the main state prison after not being outside of the gates, if you will, for 12 years. So the proof is in the pudding, right? <gasps> there it is. Here it is. <laughs> there it is in full glory, the hint cherry flavored seltzer. This is not a joke. November 28th, 2022 is the expiration date. <laughs> Uh, so thinking back, um, as I often have, I think about what it felt like that first time of sharing physical space with my students, where that was the first time I think I really felt real for them, as opposed to just another professor on the wall. And that was actually a comment from one of my students was that in this virtual world of COVID, they got used to uh, having professors show up virtually. And so I was just another professor showing up on camera. That was normal. And then when I came into the classroom and I was talking about the hobblers on my legs that were that would prevent me from running if I was stupid enough to try that, uh, when I extended my leg, and the brace locked out, I could see a couple of my students flinch. And it was in that moment that the reality of my incarceration really set in, the presence of security. And then in that moment, it became visceral. But for me, I, I was, as I do, I make light of sometimes some heavy things. Uh, but I, I was I was uh, smiling and joking a little bit as I was describing to them how standing at just under six and a half feet tall, weighing in at about 280 pounds at the time, I was cramped in the back of a Ford SUV with, I had to sit sideways, um, belly chain around my waist, hands cuffed in front of me. And just marveling at the fact that I was able to be so close to a tree that I could see the detail of its bark. And how in that really confined space, I felt more free than I had in over a dozen years. And being able to hear their voices, not just hear their voices, but feel their voices in my body coming from different directions in the room as each one spoke, that's something that Zoom will never be able to capture, is the feeling of the vibration of a voice. And that was a moment of deep connection and resonance that I'm able to put myself back into. I don't even really need the bottle. <laughs> I can just <laughs> close my eyes and take myself back there. But I hold that for the day when the weight of where I am in the world and my inability. Because, listen, the work being done here is amazing. The level of access that I have is unheard of to be able to engage with the world and support people and care for people in the ways that I need to in the way that is so very much needed in this world. 
And at the same time, I keep coming back to what I can't do for these young people who need me most. And so when I'm feeling at my lowest, when I feel like I'm going to sink through this concrete floor, that's the day that I'm waiting for. Because I know it's going to come. You know, people see me smiling. People see me in the work that I do. But they don't see the nights when I sit up and want to quit. Because it's just too hard and I don't see enough change. I don't see enough opportunities for healing. I don't see the support and the guidance that's necessary for people who have been harmed repeatedly to be able to trust the opportunities that are provided. Opportunities are opened, but in order for those opportunities, in order for people like me, years ago, and even up till recently, not being able to trust opportunities, when we've been hurt and when life has told us that we cannot trust an opportunity because eventually someone is going to strip it away from us. So we have to milk it for all it's worth. And what we end up doing is screwing it up. And so there has to be, with every opportunity that's provided, there needs to be support and guidance in order to help people like me know that the opportunity is not going to be taken away. And so when I don't see that, and when I feel the weight of that, and I feel so very alone, like so many of us do, I know I'm not. I know I'm not alone in this work. I know there are so many people struggling and fighting and pushing to bring about change and healing and repair in the same ways that I am. But it doesn't mean that I don't sit up at night sometimes and ask myself if it's worth it, that I don't sit there and feel the weight of loneliness of this walk. And so it's for a night like that or a day like that <laughs> when... I just want to throw my hands up and say no mas, that I have that, to be able to crack that open and have that literal taste of freedom. Thank you, Leo. It resonates so deeply with me. I haven't walked in your shoes. I haven't lived your life, but I feel you. Thank you. And thank you for sharing that. Now, my question, what does bravery mean to you, Leo? That word, bravery. Bravery for me goes hand in hand with activism. Bravery for me means standing up when everything and everyone around you is telling you to sit down. Bravery is speaking up when everything and everyone is telling you to shut up. <laughs> bravery is a holding strong to the truth that you know unwaveringly, regardless of the cost of holding to that truth. And sometimes bravery is sitting down and resting when the structures and systems and society around you tell you that you have to push through your pain, that you have to push through, not push through, but move on from. It's sitting down and taking care of yourself and sitting down and taking care of others when all of the pressures of life tell you that you don't have time for it. Bravery is showing up for people when they need you. When it even, and especially when the timing of it is inconvenient for you. Bravery is really showing up in the fullness of who you are rather than feeling like you have to conform to what somebody else expects you to be. How can we support you, Leo? How can the people listening to this podcast, how can our listeners support the work that you're doing? Well, I'm always open to give presentations to college classes. Okay, <laughs> um, well, that's a great, that's number one checkbox. That's just great. Because what college class wouldn't be honored and riveted to have you there as a speaker? I would love to show up. Um, to have opportunities to be a guest lecturer or a guest presenter for college classes, speaking on restorative, transformative, or transitional justice, um, prison abolition, juvenile justice, um, trauma healing. Yeah, I would love for opportunities to do that. Um, but really, what I need, I may never see. And what I need from every listener 
is for them to make time for the people around them. Make time for the people who ask time of you. Show up for people in the fullness of who you are in the moment rather than who you think society expects you to be. And if you are in the social justice movement, whether it's restorative, transformative, transitional justice, prison abolition, racial justice, um, gender justice, whatever work you're doing, see the people that you're doing it with in the fullness of who they are, especially the people who differ in how we get there. Because I think we find that on big picture things, that we need to care for each other, that we need to provide for our children, that we need to keep them safe, that we need that everyone needs their basic human needs met. These are things that we can agree on, that we need accountability and healing and repair in our communities, and especially opportunities like this for our children, for our young people, for our emerging adults. These are things that we can agree on. And so rather than continuing to perpetuate this polarization that just because you see something different than I am means that I can't talk to you or that we can't be with each other, that we can't work this thing out. <laughs> what I need is for people to show up and stop believing that lie. See people, catch yourself when you're in that moment of, I don't like them, so that means I can't deal with them. Ask yourself, what is it about this person that I can't work with? What is a potential connection with this person that helps me see them more fully as I would want them to see me? What is it about me that I feel like they don't see? And ask a question to get to that piece of them that you don't see. Because I got to tell you, I have to give a plug for this book. It's called See No Stranger by Valerie Kaur. Okay. Uh, she did an amazing TED Talk called Three Lessons on Revolutionary Love in a Time of Rage. It's about 20 minutes. And this woman <laughs> really, really articulates how to show up in this world with revolutionary love. Love of self love of others, and love of our enemies, or people who we perceive to be our enemies. That when I see you as a full human being, as a part of me that I don't know yet, it helps me cultivate a sense of wonder that makes me want to know you, even in the midst of my pain, and even if you may be the one who has caused me that pain. And so watch that video, get that book, and start showing up in the world with a little bit of revolutionary love. Uh, I think we can do some things. When you said TED Talk, Leo, you should do a TED Talk. I would love to do a TED Talk. I wonder if there's, I, I, it just, it came to me when you said you were talking about Valerie Kaur, who I don't know, and I'm going to check off in my list and order books and do everything and listen to Dime Meat. I love TED Talks. You would be the best at a TED Talk. So on your list of to-dos, and I don't know how you make it happen, what a what a great thing to aspire to. Well, I guess I might need to ask permission to see if I can make that thing happen. I would love to do Your that. Your messages are so meaningful, connected, and powerful. That's what they need, and that's what they want. And talk about getting that voice out into the world. What a great vehicle. Wouldn't that be something? <laughs> I had one I had one question. You grew up with brothers and sisters, I think. Are they still in this world? Are they are they connected to you? Are they are they reconnected to you because of the great work you're doing? I felt like when you're talking about connection, I wanted to ask about I mean, I know your mom and dad aren't around anymore, but your brothers and sisters, biological and otherwise, perhaps. Yeah, so um <clears throat> actually my mom is still around. And, oh, is yep. she? Okay, God bless her. Yeah. So, so my dad passed um, shortly before my incarceration, but my mom and I actually reconnected. So, through throughout my journey in the foster system, uh, part of part of the deal on why my mom was willing to sign off on me entering foster care was with the requirement that I would be able to call them once a week, and so. We stayed connected uh, throughout my time in the foster system. And when I was 15 and my brother finally got out of the house, um, I tried going back home. Uh, 
I tried pushing for reunification so that my mom wouldn't be there alone and so that I could show up and help take care of my family because I felt like someone needed to be there. The courts and my foster parents and my caseworker and everybody else saw through what I was trying to do. Um, I put it under the guise of I'm ready to be back with my parents when the reality was um, I wanted to make sure that my mom was safe. And so, so we kind of stayed in communication over that time, but the reconnection happened a few years into my prison sentence. So when I first committed my crime, I was immediately racked with guilt and shame over what I did. And I took the police on a walk through the crime scene. I didn't understand why I did what I did. I didn't understand trauma. I didn't understand how it shows up. I didn't, I didn't understand how my violent training in my youth would manifest in my adulthood. So I couldn't give them the why, but I could give them the what. I could take responsibility for what I did, even though I didn't understand why I did it. And then through my journey through um, jail and when I first got to the prison, really, well, before my sentencing, I learned how to devise stories according to the evidence against me. And so stepped out of accountability, out of responsibility in order to protect myself against a system that was trying to take my life. And so after I was sentenced, after I exhausted my appeals, withdrew my post-conviction review, once I did all that, got done fighting the courts, I started healing and growing. And I finally got back to, a, to that place of accountability five years after I was incarcerated. And I reached out to my family. I reached out to everyone who loved and supported me at the time and admitted that I had been lying to them for five years and that I was actually fully guilty of the crime that I committed. And so I needed to seek their forgiveness for lying to them and for any harm that I caused them by doing so. And it was at that time that my mom responded and said, I was not surprised by what you did. I was saddened, but I wasn't surprised and I've known the whole time. And then over the following years through healing, the occasional outreach, the connection of shared letters back and forth with my mom and my brother and my sister. They would send me pictures of my nieces and nephews as they grew up. Until now, where we are now is fully reconciled, ongoing healing, because I, I don't know if anyone ever fully heals in this life, but I think we're always continually healing. But we are very near healed relationally we're all doing our individual healing work um but we are very much in each other's lives and reconnected and supporting each other in healing and connection which feels amazing thank you leo thank you for the incredible work that you're doing and for the kids the young adults the students whose lives you are changing I'm honored to have had you as a guest, Leo, and I can't wait for the world to hear what you've got to say. And please know that you are making a difference. Thank you. This has been great, Marilyn. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. For updates between episodes, I'd encourage you to join my mailing list, which you can do at either MarilynBarefoot.com or BreakingBrave.show. At most once a month, at least once a quarter, you'll receive an update on the latest resources, topics, and information I've found either super helpful or amazingly impactful. That's it for now. See you next time.